Matthew 7, verses 21 through 29. It says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rains fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the, crowd, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. May we be blessed by the reading of God's word this morning. You may be seated. Before we get started in this morning's message, I want to talk to you uh, about somebody. Um, he was born in New York, in Brooklyn, New York, in 1963. His father's a businessman. His mom was a homemaker. And when he was a toddler, they moved uh, to the south. They moved down to North Carolina. He's got uh, four siblings. He's got three other older brothers and one younger sister. Uh, he's been married twice. He's in his second marriage. His first marriage, he had two uh, three children, two boys and a girl. In his new marriage, he's got uh, two twin girls. He graduated with a degree uh, with a cultural ge- geography degree. I'm not really sure what that's going to do for you. Uh, his dad in uh, 1993 was murdered, a cold-blooded murder in South Carolina. But this is the man who taught me how to play basketball. He uh, was a point guard for the University of North Carolina. He played three years. He graduated uh, and became uh, the third overall pick in the NBA draft. His name is Michael Jordan. He's a five-time MVP. He's a five-time MVP finalist. He's got one of the, he holds the scoring records. Uh, He's a billionaire. I could keep going on and on and on about all the things about Michael Jordan. But see, what you would not say to me this morning is that I know Michael Jordan. I know about Michael Jordan. I've got all the facts about Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan even taught me how to shoot a jump shot. But you would not say to me, unless you thought I was a fool this morning, oh yeah, Todd knows Michael Jordan. You would not leave here and say to your friends, hey, our pastor knows Michael Jordan. Though I just quoted all these facts about him and there's page upon page upon page about the facts that I know about him. But I don't know him. I know about him, but I do not know him. My fear this morning as we come to the end of the Sermon on the Mount would be this, that many of us, it's true all over the world, that there's many professing believers that would say they know Jesus, but the fact is they only know about Jesus. My, my greater fear for us this morning, my greatest fear this week as I've been mulling and praying over this text is that, God, I pray that there's no one in this congregation that only knows about you. You see, I, I think all of us in the room, we've been coming, we've been hearing about the Sermon on the Mount for about 34 weeks now. And, and all of us in the room, I, I believe, would be said, yeah, we know more about Jesus because we've heard the Sermon on the Mount. But what this text is going to tell us, what Jesus is going to wrap this whole sermon on, the greatest sermon that's ever been preached, is simply this. It's not about knowing about me. You must know me. And the flip side to that is, I must know you, is what Jesus tells us. I I love this quote by John Newton. He says this. He says, if I ever reach heaven... I expect to find three wonders there first. The first is this, to meet some I'd never thought to see there. The second, to miss some I expected to see there. And third, 
the greatest wonder of all is to find myself there. What John Newton is saying, who we think are going to get to heaven, they not, may not be there. And those who we think won't be there, they might be there. But the greatest wonder has to start with you and it has to start with me. Can we and do we have the assurance of our salvation this morning as we wrap all this up in the Sermon on the Mount? This is the most important sermon that I could preach on all of the 34 weeks that we've been through. My hope is that you this morning would leave with the assurance of your salvation and that you would not leave here saying, yes, I know about Jesus. But you would leave here this morning with all the assurance that says, oh, I know Jesus. And the more beautiful part of it is, he knows me. You see, it has to go hand in hand. I must know him, but he also must know me for me to have salvation. And Jesus is going to talk to us in this text about what it means for us to know him and for him to know us. Let us pray. God, there's no greater text, uh, and you preached it. I just have the ability and the gift to give it back to your people that could be preached as you ended this sermon, God. I pray that for us in this place this morning, that God, if there's any of us that just know about you, that this morning through your Holy Spirit, through the songs that we sang, through the fellowship, through now the preaching and teaching of your word, that you, Holy Spirit, would convict us and draw us to know you, not just to know about you. Continue to lead us and continue to guide us. I'm so grateful for these 34 weeks or so that we've been in this sermon. I pray that, God, we would become kingdom citizens. And in doing so, God, that we would give back all that you've given to us to this lost world that you have around us. Like you say in Matthew chapter 5, God, allow us to be the salt and the light of the world. We pray this in your famous and sweet name. Amen. And so Jesus, here in Matthew chapter 7, as he rounds out the Sermon on the Mount, is going to give us two choices. You remember over the last two weeks we've talked about Jesus gives us choices. Remember the first thing we said, he gives us the, the narrow gate or the, the wide gate. You have a choice, he says. You, you choose which one you want to go on. He says to us, there's two paths to choose from. There's two groups of people that you can choose to live in. There's two destinations for you to go on. And last week we looked at there's two trees, the, the good tree or the bad tree, the one that bears good fruit or the one that does not. He said there's two kinds of people. There's the unbeliever and the believer, there's choices that you have to make. And so again, here, as he rounds out the greatest sermon ever preached, he's going to push us to make a choice. He's going to push us to choose to, our, what kind of builders are we going to be? Two builders. What kind of foundation are we going to build on? And ultimately, what, what kind of house are we going to build? So two choices. The, the option, again, is yours. I love that Jesus gives us options here in this text. But not just does he give us options, but he gives us the result of the options. He's saying there's a way that you can live and live fully and wholly, and it's going to be difficult, but the end, there's going to be eternity. He says, but there's a choice you can make, and there's a wide gate you can go through, and there's a broad path you can walk on, and there's a foundation you can build on, and it's easy, but it leads into destruction. He said, now here, the choice is yours. He's not allowing us to not see it all the way to the end. He's giving us the end right up front. The choice is ours. And so for us this morning, he's going to tie this back into what he just preached. Remember what we just talked about last week was false uh, prophets or false teachers or false disciples. And here he's going to give us this idea that last week he talked to us about, hey, there, there's issues with the external. There are people that want to lead you astray, and here's the great danger that comes out of false prophets, that you and I, we, if we begin to believe in false prophets, then we're going to believe and live our lives according to false truth rather than to the truth. And he's going to tell us, hey, this is what happens when we begin to believe the false prophets. So now he's going to warn us against ourselves. Last week he warned us against others. This week he's going to warn us against ourselves. He's going to do it in two ways. The two warnings are this. Living with empty words and living with empty hearts. Verse 20, 
1 through 23 is living with empty words. I love Nashville, and I love that I get sick in the spring. I mean, what's that about? I can't even breathe right now. No crazy stories this week. Uh, I heard about that story getting out to other people, and I'm like, that was never meant to leave the four walls of this uh, building. And so if other people come up to me again this week, I know who did it, because I'm not telling that story again. So empty words, verses 21 through 23. Let's look at that again. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of the Father who is in heaven. Verse 22, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? And did we not do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you, Depart from me, for you are workers of lawlessness. That is one of the most frightening texts in all of the Bible to me. The reason it's so frightening to me is that there are people that would claim to be believers and they're claiming to do things that are mighty indeed, and they are mighty indeed, and yet Jesus says to them, I don't know you. And so the first warning he gives us, don't allow our words to be empty. Let our words matter. Let our words have a foundation. Let our words come from someplace deeper than just within ourselves. He starts with this word. Let everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, circle that in your Bibles this morning. You see, in Jesus' day, people would refer, refer to other people as Lord. It would be the same as you, when you come to me and say, Brother Todd, or I come to you and say, Sir, whoever, or Ma'am, whoever. Like, there is a respect level that would come in that, that day and age when people would say, Lord. But that's not the word Jesus is, is choosing here. The word Jesus is choosing here is a word that means Lord. It means Yahweh. It means Jehovah. He is saying in that moment, to the people that are listening to him, I am not only this, the, the human, but I'm also God. Like he is in that moment saying, people are going to come to me and call me Lord. They're going to call me God. They're not just going to have a respect for me, they're also going to have a reverence for me. And he says to them, there will be people that come and say, Lord, Lord. And so for us, what do we call the Lord this morning? Do we know God? And we use capital L-O-R-D. Do we say to him, Yahweh, God, or do we come to him like everyone else would come to him and just say, sir? It starts there. How do you and what do you say to be true about who Christ is? Is Christ fully man and fully God, or is he just a great teacher? Because if he was a great teacher, the great C.S. Lewis says, then he was a great lunatic. Because if you read the teachings of Jesus and all he was was a great teacher and wasn't Lord, then he looks like a crazy man that needs to be locked up in an asylum. And so for us, it starts those few words. Who do you say that the Lord is this morning? How do you call on the name of the Lord? Now Jesus says to us, and in this passage, what it looks like for us to know if we have true assurance of our salvation. It goes down to this one, one phrase. Only those that do the will of my Father. God reveals to us that it's not our words that matter, but it's our actions that matter. You cannot, and I cannot, separate salvation and obedience. They go hand in hand. If you and I claim to know God as Father and Jesus as Lord, then our salvation will be coupled with our obedience. You cannot be saved and continue on in disobedience. That's what he's saying here. He's saying, if you know God, then you know the will of God. If you know the will of God, you know the word of God. If you know the word of God, then you will act out of obedience to the word of God. And so he's saying, your salvation is and your life must be coupled together so that you are doing the will of God. You cannot do the will of God and live in constant disobedience, nor can I. 
And that's what he's saying to us. He's saying there's a lot of people that are going to come and say, hey God, we've done all these things in your name, and they can have proof that they did them all, and Jesus is going to say, yes, but you were not doing it in the will of God. Even the demons believe in Jesus. Even the demons know about Jesus, but they do not know him. Even Satan knows about Jesus, but he does not know him. And so Satan, it says, we looked at it last week, masks around like an angel of light. So there's things that appear to be godly that come from the power of the devil, but they're coming from the power of the devil and not from the will of God. That's the tricky part. That's the scary part. That Satan masks around looking like God And then we begin to believe false prophets because they look like they're doing the things of God, but in doing the things of God, they're not doing the will of God, and so therefore they don't really know God. He's saying that's our great danger for us. You and I, we cannot separate salvation and obedience. They go hand in hand. The great danger of Thomas Jefferson, if you know our third president, this is what Thomas Jefferson did not believe. Thomas Jefferson knew all about God. Thomas Jefferson knew all about Jesus, probably more than any of us in the room. He was a great theologian and a great man of the word of God, but here's the great danger of what Thomas Jefferson did. If you know the story, what Thomas Jefferson did was, hey, I'm going to take the Bible and I'm going to take out the things that I don't want to believe. So what Thomas Jefferson did, he took a Bible and started cutting and pasting and making his own Bible to believe what he wanted to believe and took the things that he didn't want to believe and took it out and said, yeah, I'm a believer. But he did not know or do the will of God. He did his own will. He chose what was true and false. That's the great danger for us this morning. Remember, do we really know God? Do we know Jesus or we just know about him? James chapter 2, as I just said, Uh, Verse 19 says this, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. That is a scary passage. This is a scary passage to teach this morning. Again, I'm going to harp on this all morning. Do you simply know about God or do you know God this morning? He says this, this is how you will know God or you will not know God. You will do the will of God and in doing the will of God, uh, you you won't do what he says in the final uh, few words in this passage. He says, and then then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. They practice lawlessness. What Jesus was saying, hey, your life, and what you believe do not go hand in hand. Your life is a life of unrepented sin. Your life is a life of dependence on self. Your life is a life about you, and it's not about me. He takes us back to what he just taught on. Are you a good fruit, a tree that bears good fruit, or are you a bad tree that bears bad fruit? Because if you are a good fruit, tree that bears good fruit, you will not continue to practice lawlessness. You will, you will be a good fruit bearing tree and so for us do we and does our life would jesus say to us this morning depart from you you who practice lawlessness there is a lot of believers that quote unquote that claim to know jesus but if you were able to get into their life they don't practice a life of what it means to be a believer now i'm not saying this morning you have to have a perfect life there's only one that was perfect His name was Jesus. But Jesus, throughout the Sermon on the Mount, is going to continue to point us back to does our life look like a life that's dependent on him for our righteousness? And so if you and I were to open up the chest and the heart of many people that claim to be believers, they say it with their words, but their heart is as dark as it can be. I mean, just watch the NBA Finals coming up. All those guys, when they win, they're going to give praise to Jesus, and then you're going to flip it to the next day, and they're going to do some crazy things. Because what they say they believe publicly is not what they believe they trust in practically behind the doors. And it's a scary passage. This is a frightening passage. 
to us. Because I think we know people that would say they love Jesus, but you look at their life and they're like, man, that is the farthest thing from who Christ is and what Christ has called them to be. The last thing he says, and this is the scary part, he says this is what happens to those who practice lawlessness. This is what happens to those who continue to go on in unrepented sin. He says he's going to say to us, depart from me. Flip all the way back, not literally, but flip all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. These are the very words that God spoke to Adam and Eve and has spoken ever since that day. This is what happens to us as the people that do not come into repentance of God. He's going to say to us, depart from me, I never knew you. That is what he said to Adam and Eve at the garden. That's what took Adam and Eve out of the garden. There was punishment for their sin for their rebellion, and it is always going to be a departure from who God is. Our sin departs us from the presence of God. How come? Because God cannot be in the presence of sin. Therefore, if you and I are in unconfessed sin, we cannot be in the presence of God. What we need is for Christ Jesus to shed his blood on us, his blood is what covers us, that God no longer sees us, but he sees his son, and therefore he never says to us, depart from me, because he no longer sees you, but he sees his son in and around you. Another scary passage. Would Jesus say to you this morning, and you've done a lot of great things, but depart from me, because I never knew you. Though you claim to know me, I don't know you. And that's going to happen to many people. Many people. I love this quote. I don't know who it comes from. It says this. This is what this man said. He says, why call me Lord, Lord, and you do not uh, do the things I say? You call me the way and walk me not. You call me the life and live me not. You call me the master and obey me not. If I condemn thee, blame me not. Yet call me bread and eat me not. You call me truth and believe me not. You call me Lord and serve me not. If I condemn thee, blame me not. That is a powerful quote. Like do we, can we as believers, are we saying, yes, God is the way, the truth, and the life. And if we believe that, then we'll walk in that. Do we believe that he's the bread of life? If we believe that, then we'll take of him and have full life. Do we walk in the truths of God or do we walk in our own way? Because there is, and we'll see it at the end of the passage, there is condemnation for those who do not believe. Jesus then says to us, the next part, it's not just about your empty words. It's not just about do you just claim to know him and he doesn't know you. He now takes it a step further and says, it's about your empty hearts. Verses 24 through 27 everyone circle that i'll get back to that everyone then who hears these words of mine and does not do them and does them is like a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house but it did not fall because it had a foundation on the rock and everyone again circle the word everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the wind blew and beat against the house and it fell with a gr- and it was, was great and, and a great fall. So for us, is it just empty hearts? I, I want to talk about the similarities that Jesus is going to give us in this passage to begin with. There are similarities for those who claim to know Jesus but they don't know him. Right? There's those who have empty hearts, though they don't seem to be empty. That's what Jesus, he's going to give us similarities. Those similarities are this. As I said, circle the word everyone. Both the foolish man and the wise man, they both heard the gospel. It wasn't that the foolish man did not hear the gospel. He heard the gospel just the same way the wise man heard the gospel. They both heard the gospel. If you're here this morning, you over the last 34 weeks have heard the gospel week in and week out. The second thing that we see, the similarities of those who have an empty heart and those who have a full heart, 
they both build houses. Like they're the foolish man, he doesn't build his house on the rock, he builds his house on the sand. The wise man and the foolish man, they both built their house. You are going to build a life for yourself. The next one is this. And this is a crazy one. They both believed that their house would stand on what they built it on. Right? No foolish man is going to say to himself, hey, I'm going to build a house that it's not going to stand, so I'm just going to build it anyway. The foolish man said to himself, yes, I'm going to build this house, and yes, I'm going to believe that this house is going to stand the same way that the wise man said, I'm going to build a house, and I'm going to believe it to stand. They both built houses that thought they would stand. Here's the other part. This is another scary part. They built it in the same location. How do we know that? Because the storm came. It doesn't say the storm came over there against the, the, the foolish man and the wise man. It came over there. It says, no, the storm came. You have two houses on two properties that are next door to each other. This may be your neighbor. Or the scary part is, you may be the neighbor. The next thing that we see, the similarities between an empty heart and a full heart is, they both experienced the same storm. The same storm beat against their houses at the same time. Here's the next one. Externally, they built the same house. Again, they might have used different paint. They may have used different interior. Their house may look different. But a house is a house, right? Some are bigger, some are bricks, some are wood. But a house is a house. And so they built the same thing. So we can see all the similarities that you and I, if we looked at a house, if we looked at a man's life, would say, hey, he looks like he's a believer. He's heard the gospel. It looks like he's responded to the gospel. He built his life that we think was on the gospel. He, he built it with integrity, so we think. So externally, you and I would say, man, that guy's a believer. But we're not the judge. We're not the quote-unquote inspector, if you will. There is one who comes and inspects. But here's the greatest difference between the man of a full heart and the man with an empty heart. It says this, everyone then who what? Hears. They've all heard the words of mine. I could preach on that a whole other sermon, the words of mine. He's not saying the words of someone else. He's not saying, he's saying I'm making a claim today that my words give everlasting life. I could preach for decades on those three words. So please don't miss those words. He says, here's the difference between the wise man and the foolish man. It's found in these words. Does them. You see, the wise man does the word of God. The, the wise man builds his house upon the word of God. The foolish man does not. The foolish man decides that he's going to build his house on his own words, and on his own power, on his own self-will. Those two little words change the outcome of everything. And it's not just they change the outcome for these two men. They change the outcome for your life and to my life. And it goes back to what he just preached a few moments ago. Will we be men and women that will build our lives on doing the will of God? Because what he's saying is these men, the wise men, built their house on doing the will of God, his words. They change everything. Here's the other thing about those two little words. Circle them in your Bibles, please. They are action words. Does them. It takes action for our salvation to bear much fruit. Now, don't hear me saying it's your works that lead you to salvation. No, your works will show of your salvation. Your works show your salvation. Your obedience shows your salvation. And what are we building our lives on? We're building our lives, if we're wise men and women, we're building our lives on the rock. Circle that in your Bible. It's the word Petra. It's where we get the name Peter. It's where uh, we, we see that there's this massive, it's not one rock that you build your house on. It's this huge foundation, this expanse foundation of the truth of God. It's not just one truth of God, it's the whole truth of God. We build our life on the 
truth of God. See, Thomas Jefferson built his life on some of the truths of God, but that's not what saved him. It's not you and I deciding what we're going to build our lives on and what we'll build our lives not on. We have to take the whole counsel of God and build our lives on the whole counsel of God. This is not a, I don't know if you remember these books. I do it as an elementary school. This is not a choose-your-own-adventure book. You don't get to the bottom of the page and say, oh, if you want to go this way, you read this book page. If you want to go this way, you read this page. No, we take the whole counsel of God, and in taking the whole counsel of God, we build our lives on the whole counsel of God. You, you see, or we like the man who built his house on the sand. The sand, what, where do you get sand from? You get sand from rocks. And so what he's saying is, are you just going to take parts of the rock? Are you just going to take bits and pieces that you chip off the rock and build your house on that? Are you going to build your life on the whole expanse of God? Uh, I was turned on to this man by uh, Brother Frank, and I, I love this theologian, uh, Mr. Pink. Dr. Pink says this, Officer Pink says this, about are you going to build your life on the rock or on the sand? So he's talking to the man that builds his life on the sand. They bring their bodies to the house of prayer, to the church, but not their souls. They worship with their mouths, but not in spirit and truth. They're sticklers to emerge, and that simply means baptism, or early morning communion. But they take not thought about keeping their hearts with all diligence. They, both about, they boast about their orthodoxy, but they disregard the precepts of God. You see, there's orthodoxy, it's what you believe, and then there's this other word called orthopraxy. It's that you take the orthodoxy of what you believe and you put it into how you practice. That's what Pink is saying here. Multitudes of professing Christians abstain from sexual acts of violence, yet hesitate not to rob their neighbors of good name by spreading evil reports against them. They, they contribute regularly to the pastor's salary, but they shrink not from misrepresenting their goods and cheating their customers, persuading themselves that business is business. They have more regard for the laws of man than those of God, for his fear is not before their eyes. I mean, catch what he's saying there. He's saying there's a multitude of professing believers that do not take what they believe to be true, their orthodoxy, and put it into their orthopraxy, how they live out their day-to-day -day life. And what you'll see as we continue is, if we don't live out our orthodoxy with our orthopraxy, we're not saved at all. They have to go hand. Those two hold each other's hands. Salvation and obedience hold hands that cannot be separated. And so for you and I, what does it really mean to build our house on the rock? Flip over to Matthew chapter 16. What is the rock that Jesus is talking about? If we just take this passage in and of itself and we don't go to the whole context of the word of God, we can miss it. So this is the first time that Jesus talks about the rock. But here in Matthew chapter 16, he gives us a more expansive view on the rock he's talking about. He's talking to Peter. And Peter Simon replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood does, has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, you are rock, you are Petra. On this rock I will build my house, I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. What Jesus is saying, he's not going to build his house on Peter. Catch that. If you're Catholic, Catholics believe that to be true. They believe that the church was built on Peter. No, what, what Jesus is saying here, no, Peter, what I'm going to build my church on is what? The rock that you just stated. And what's the rock he just stated? That you are Christ, the son of the living God. And we see Peter didn't just say those words. But for the rest of his life, he lived that out to be true. That's the rock that Jesus is calling us to build our lives on. That is the foundation of our lives. Do you this morning 
just simply believe uh, and know that Jesus is the Lord, or do you believe and trust that to be true? This is what he says, James says, James chapter 1, verse 22 through 23. You see, as kingdom citizens, it's not just about us hearing the words of God. As kingdom citizens, that's what this whole sermon's are about. It's about kingdom citizens live out practically what it means to live in the kingdom of God. And he says this, James says this, but be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Verse 23, for if anyone is a hearer of the word and does, is not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently into the, his natural face in the mirror and he walks away from it not knowing. He's saying, if you don't know, if you simply hear the words of God and you don't put them into practice, you're like a man that looks in the mirror and when he turns away, he forgets what he saw. He's saying, you're, you must be a doer of the word of God. Again, doing the word of God is not what saves you. The salvation comes through Christ and Christ alone, but the doing will show to the world that we are professing believers. Another way John says this in 1 John chapter 3. And by this we know that we have come to know him. Who's him? God. If we keep his commandments, if we do his commandments. Whoever says I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. By what? By keeping his commandments. Whoever says he abides in him ought walk in the same way in which he walked. Who's he? Christ. How did he walk? He walked in strict obedience to the will of God. Here's how Paul says it. Titus chapter 1. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and the unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They're detestable, dishonest, unfit for any good. What Paul and John and Christ are saying to us, our salvation is going to play out practically through our obedience. If you are not obedient, you are not saved. They do not go hand in hand. And so for us in closing this morning, what does it look like to have our life built on the rock two things we live a life of obedience to the will of God we know the will of God because we know the truths of God we know the truths of God because we spend time with God do you and do I do we make a daily commitment to know the word of God it's what David says I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you do you and do I do we spend time in the word of God apart from Sunday morning from 10.15 to 11.30. The second thing is this. A life built on the rock is a life that is selfless. That's what Christ says. He says, come to me and deny yourself. You know that you live a life that's built on the rock if you live a selfless life. It's not about you. That's what John said this morning. This place is not about you. This church is not about you. I'd even go so far to say this church isn't even for you. This church, what we do every Sunday is we come into corporate worship to give praise and honor back to God for the glory of God, not for the glory of man. If you're coming for yourself, do not come. This church is not for you. This church is that we would get encounter with a holy God and we come to know him and his holiness and live out practically the truths of God. This is how you know if your life is built on the sand. The first one is this. You have a life of self-will. Like, do you believe that you make all things happen? That's self-will. Even the job you go to isn't because you chose the job. God chose the job for you. Even the, the, what you do at the job isn't because you do the work. God is giving you the ability to do the work. You see, even you getting the, to work is because God allowed you to get to work. 
If God didn't want you to get to work, he'd take a Mack truck and smack you front end. I, I mean, I hate to be that blunt about it, but God's will is sovereign over all things, even the job you do. Or do you and I think, oh, I got this. It's because of me. The last thing, if you know your life is built on the sand, if you live a life that's unteachable. Because if you live a life of unteachable, you won't take the truths of God and live out practically the truths of God because God is telling us how to live and we must remain teachable to God, to the Holy Spirit, to live out our lives to honor Him. It's simply this, what, what Jesus says to us in Matthew 13. You see, if you live a life on the sand, you live a life that's built on rocky ground. Your salvation is on rocky ground. This is what he says to us in Matthew 13, verse 20. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word intently and receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures it for a while, and then the tribulation and the persecution arises, and on account of the word, he falls away. You see, if you build your life on a foundation that's not the rock, the storm is coming, I promise. Here's the great promise, and it's a scary promise. The storm is coming. And what I mean by that, the great promise, this isn't the storm of your everyday, ordinary life. The storms in your life are going to come. Some people in this room may be experiencing a storm now. What this means is the great storm is coming. The, the great day, on that day, that day is the day of judgment. The final judgment is a stormy day, is what Jesus is saying to here. The promise is coming. The promise of God is that there is a storm that's coming, and that storm is going to reveal to you and to others, have you built your house on the rock, or have you built your house on the sand? Because it's coming. And here's the saddest part. If you've built your house on the sand, what it says here in this, these final words, and the, the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. You see, here's the other scary promise. When the storm comes, the final judgment comes, and it reveals to you and to me what your life or my life was built on, there is nothing else left to show of it. It's gone, is what Jesus is saying. If you build your life on a foundation that's sand, when the final judgment comes, you will spend eternity without Christ forever. It is all gone. There's no going back to repair it. There's no second chances after the final judgment. And so what Jesus has been telling us over and over and over in this text, from Matthew chapter 5 to Matthew chapter 7, is, hey, don't build your life on the sand. Because if you build your life on the sand, you will turn and live eternity apart from Christ forever and ever and ever and ever. Hell isn't hell because it's hot. Hell isn't hell because Satan's there. Hell is hell because there is no God there. That's what makes hell hell. There is no presence of God there. That's the scariest part about hell. I've said it over and over from this pulpit. If you are a believer, this is the only hell you will know. But if you're an unbeliever, this is the only heaven you will know. Because even here, on this side of eternity, God is everywhere. But on that side of eternity... There is only one place that God is, and he's not in hell. So the promise is the storm is coming. And this morning, what have you built your life on? I love this illustration as we close. It's by C.S. Lewis. He writes this. It's a long quote, so bear with me. He says this, when I was a child, I often had a toothache. And I knew that if I went to my mother, she would give me something that would deaden the pain for the night and let me go to sleep. But I did not go to my mother. At least not till the pain became very bad. And the reason I did not go to her or go do this was this. I did not doubt that she would give me an aspirin. But I knew she would also do something else. I knew she'd take me to the dentist the next day. 
I could not get what I wanted out of her without getting something more to which I did not want. I wanted immediate relief from the pain, but I did not want to go without having my teeth set permanently right. And I knew those dentists. I knew they would start filling around with all sorts of other teeth, then they had not yet begun to ache. They never will let sleeping dogs lie. Now, if I may, put it this way. Our Lord is like a dentist. If you give him an inch, he'll take them all. That's why he warned people to count the cost before, before coming Christians. Make no mistake, he says. I will make you perfect. The moment you put yourself into my hands, that's what you, you're, you are in for. Nothing less or often than that. Understand that I'm going to see this job through. I will never rest nor let you rest until you are literally perfect. Until my father can say without reservation that he is well pleased with you. And that he said he is well pleased with me. Catch what he says there. If you are here this morning and you put your hope and your trust and your faith into Christ Jesus, Christ is going to do all that he can and all that he will do to bring you to perfection. He's going to work endlessly and tirelessly to remove and eradicate sin for your life. And let me tell you, when you and I practice the Sermon on the Mount, it's a painful process. Living like Christ is a very painful process. Because it's God and through Christ Jesus, he takes out a a sharp knife and begins to take out the sin in our life. And that's a painful process. And so if you're here this morning, you don't want to go through the painful process, he says, then choose the easy road. But if you want to live like Christ, it's my warning to you, it's my warning to myself, your life is going to be full of pain. But oh, the great promise that comes through a life of pain is the great reward that comes. Not just in eternity, but the reward that comes now that you and I can have immense intimacy with God the Father through Christ Jesus. That you and I, we can go even tonight, today, begin to read the words of God and the words of God will soothe our pain. It happens now. We don't have to wait for eternity. Oh, but the greatest blessing is eternity. That's when you and I will be perfect. And God will work through Christ Jesus, as C.S. Lewis says, tirelessly to bring you to perfection. So that it won't be your work that, Christ, that God is going to say to you, oh, well done, my faithful servant. It will be the work of Christ in you, and God saying to Christ in you, oh, well done, my good and faithful servant. And so as we close this sermon, our prayer is that over these last 34 weeks, that you wouldn't leave here and you would not say, oh, I know more about God. Oh, I know more about Jesus. Oh, I know that he told us to be merciful and to be poor in spirit. I know all these things about Jesus. I know he told me not to rob. I know he told me not to commit adultery. But you and I would leave here after 34 weeks because of this Sermon on the Mount and say, oh, I know Jesus. I know him. And he knows me. That the God in heaven sent his son Jesus Christ onto this planet to live a sinless life so that you could be known by God. Is that true for you this morning? Or would you come up here And stand behind this pulpit and do what I did at the beginning and just rattle facts off about God the way I rattled facts off about Michael Jordan. Or do you have an intimate relationship with the God of the universe through Christ Jesus, his son? What have you built your life on this morning? Do you know him? And does he know you? Or do you simply know about him? Let us pray.
God, I'm so grateful that your son acted in obedience to you and left everything in heaven to come and walk this planet and walk it in a sinless fashion so that I may have life and have life to the full. And that Jesus, you, through your obedience, went to the cross. And you bore my shame, you bore my sin, that I would not have to experience the judgment. I would not have to experience that final storm. And that I will never have to hear the words, depart from me, or I ever knew you. God, I pray if there's anyone in this place this morning that just simply knows about you, that Lord Jesus today, through your Holy Spirit, for your divine act, would woo them to you, that they wouldn't simply know about you, but they would be, uh, they would know you, and more importantly, they'd be known by you. Continue to lead us and continue to guide us. Continue to shape our lives around the greatest sermon that was ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount. God, we cannot separate our salvation and our obedience. God, I pray that Powell's Chapel and the people of Powell's Chapel would be a people that are marked with lives of obedience. Because we simply are reminded every day of what your son Jesus did for us on that cross. Continue to lead this church, God. I pray that you would continue to lead this church and allow us to be what you tell us to be in Matthew chapter 5. Let us be the salt and the light of the world. We give you all the praise. We give you all the honor and glory. We pray this all in the mighty name of Christ Jesus. Amen.